Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we're going to go straight into this week's episode. But before I do that, I wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer. The subject matter this week is not for little ears. Um, the language, the words we're going to use, uh, use discretion. We're talking about a case involving the murder of a child. So it really is not for children to listen to. That being said, the death of a child is always tragic and heartbreaking. The murder of a child is unspeakable, and the unsolved murder of a child is unfathomable. The case of April Tinsley is all three. On April 1st, 1988, eight-year-old April Tinsley of Fort Wayne, Indiana, was playing outside with some friends when it began to rain. April told her friends that she was going to go get her umbrella. Some accounts I read said she ran in and asked her mom if she could go to her friends and get it, and her mom walked her out to the street and let her go. In other accounts, they say that April just told her friends that she was going to run and get her umbrella. Either way, April knew she had to be home for dinner by four. However, four came and went, and her mom, Janet, panicked. She tried quickly to locate April, but when she couldn't, she immediately called the police. Because she was so young, the police acted quickly. They dispatched officers to start a search, and friends and neighbors made up the rest of the over 100 people searching for the little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Despite the large group of people searching, police and civilians... They couldn't find her. A short time into the search, a young witness reported seeing a white man in his 30s forcing a girl believed to have been Tinsley into his blue pickup truck. On April 4th, just three days later, a jogger discovered her body in a ditch in Spencerville, about 20 miles from her home in Fort Wayne. She was fully clothed minus a shoe. Near the site, investigators found her missing shoe and a sex toy in a shopping bag that was later tied to the case. The autopsy revealed that April had died of asphyxiation. The innocent eight-year-old had been raped and strangled. It was determined that she had been dead for about one or two days before she was discovered, and that she had been placed in the ditch about four hours before the discovery. A newspaper article dated for April 5th said that the FBI, state police, and law enforcement agencies from two counties were participating in the investigation. It went on to say that police had no suspects or motive, but hoped someone with information about the case would come forward. They had DNA from both April and the murderer, but that meant little in 1988, except that with his DNA, they could determine his approximate age and race. Both were important factors in narrowing down the pool of suspects to look for. It was determined that the suspect was between 30 and 50 and a white male. I found the following profile on the FBI website, which I will link on our episode page, but I want to read it to you word for word here. We call this individual a preferential child sex offender. By that we mean he has a long-term and persistent sexual desire for children. In this case, the offender has demonstrated a specific sexual interest in little girls who have not yet reached puberty. In other words, he is attracted to hairless, undeveloped girls. This interest will not go away. Girls between the ages of 5 and 10 would greatly appeal to him. This does not mean he cannot interact sexually with adults or even with older children, but his overwhelming sexual fantasies and desires focus on young girls. He may be married, however, the vast majority of preferential child sex offenders are not. If he has a long-term intimate adult partner, that partner will have an idea that this individual has a sexual interest in little girls. 
but may be in denial regarding the extent of that interest or his ability to act on it. This offender may establish relationships that give him access to little girls. For instance, he may date or befriend someone in a little girl's family. Perhaps he'll seek employment or volunteer activities that give him proximity to little girls. He will be drawn to places where children congregate, playgrounds, swimming pools, parks, etc. Wherever he goes, if a little girl is nearby, his eyes will follow her. He may go out of his way to interact with her. In an unguarded moment, he may even make a casual sexual reference about a little girl, which, if overheard, would strike someone as very inappropriate, such as saying she's a sexy little thing, isn't she? Most of us do not associate adult attention toward a child with sexual attraction. People noticing his interest in little girls may simply interpret it as someone who just loves kids. This offender prefers the company of children to the company of adults, and he may be socially awkward or inappropriate when acting with adults. A preferential child sex offender tends to collect things that serve to support his fantasies and are consistent with his sexual preferences. In this case, since our offender's preference is for little girls, he may collect images of little girls, perhaps clothing, candid pictures, or even child pornography, and probably both. He may take these pictures himself, or he may find them through other sources. He may also collect other items that are arousing to him and remind him of the little girls he wants. These other items could range from articles of clothing to advertisements depicting little girls to Hello Kitty items or any toys that little girls find appealing. The public tends to think that once a person kidnaps, rapes, and kills, he will always kidnap, rape, and kill. In reality, though, a preferential child sex offender can engage in a lot of different behaviors that satisfy his sexual needs, but do not rise to the level of the prior offense. The offender may substitute nuisance sex offenses like peeping, indecent exposure, and leaving obscene notes or sexual items for a child to find. If the item is left in a mailbox or on a front door, the resident may think it was intended for the adult female in the home rather than the little girl who lives there. Oftentimes, these incidents are not reported because the significance of the offense is not recognized by citizens at the time. If the preferential child sex offender has a criminal history, it is more likely to involve sex offenses against children. In addition to all that information, it's believed that the offender was living or working in Fort Wayne, Allen County, with a low to medium income. And I wanted to read all that because they were they were spot on. And that's from the FBI. That's from the FBI. That's so the, the FBI got involved immediately then, right? Yeah, she was eight, because she was eight years old. And they found her body within three days in, in what had, how she had died and what her autopsy revealed. Mm-hmm. The police released a composite sketch of the killer based on the information from a witness jogger sparking a flood of calls. On April 11th, the police announced that a 34-year-old man is sought for questioning. Over 140 people call Crime Stoppers to report the man's resemblance to the composite sketch. During those calls, people reported that the man had talked to friends about having knowledge of April's death and that a blue pickup had been parked outside of his house. The police interrogated the man for eight hours and finally charged him with the molestation of another girl from 1987 when they couldn't tie him to April's case. The police sent hair and blood samples from him and five other suspects to a private lab to have them compared to the DNA found on April, but the test failed to exclude or include any of those men in the case. The 34-year-old suspect is finally released from jail in May after passing two polygraph tests. He's never charged in her murder. Twelve years later, on May 21, 1990, police received a report of a message scrawled on the side of a barn in St. Joseph Township that read, and I'm, I'm reading this exactly, so it's not that I'm not reading it exactly the way he wrote it. This is how he wrote it. 
I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. And did you find the other shoe? Ha ha, I will kill again. The message was written with crayons which were found near the barn. The police still found nothing. They received over 1,100 leads, but none of them led to the suspect. So do they think that that guy that wrote that was actually the person that did it? Or I don't think they knew for sure. The, so, but her missing the one shoot, was that publicized? Yeah, because they found it. I don't think it was like... So that was information that anyone could have known. Yeah, I really... I want to say no, but I, I don't really know. I never found... I know that they believed the sign, I mean, the, the writing, but they didn't... There was nothing they could do. They couldn't... No one saw anyone do it. Do you know what I mean? Fourteen years later, the case goes cold. Then during Memorial Weekend of 2004, now remember, she went missing and was murdered in 1988. In 2004, and I remember this so clearly, how old were you in 2004? I was in fourth grade, so... Eight. Eight? Yeah, you were eight, right? No, you were ten. I have no idea. In fourth grade, <laughs> I don't know. Really, you don't know you year. Just do some math. Why can't we ever do math? Like, clearly, 2004 minus 1994, you were 10. I was 10. Yeah, yeah. that was stupid. God. I, I, we need a calculator just sitting here while we do this. Four notes in 2004 were found in the Fort Wayne area that were believed to have been written by the Tinsley murderer, and this is how they knew. Three of the notes were left on girls' bicycles, and another one was left in a mailbox. Three notes were placed in plastic bags along with used condoms in a Polaroid picture of the man's lower body. One of the notes read, Hi, honey, I've been watching you. I'm the same person that kidnapped and... This is how he wrote it. I am the same person that kidnapped and rape and kill April Tinsley. He didn't say and. He put A-N. Mm-hmm. Like he was clearly not literate. You are my next victim. If you don't report this to the police, and if I don't see this in the paper tomorrow or on the local news, I will blow up your house. So he wanted the public attention. Yeah, he asked for it. Yeah. But he also, this is the creepiest part. He was watching these little girls. Yeah. To put the baggie with the note and the con- used condom in their baskets of their bicycles. So you're saying that they know that this was the guy because they tested the because condom? Because they tested yeah. Okay. They did the DNA on it and knew for sure. The DNA from the condoms matched the, DNA, the police's DNA profile, the suspect. And the mother of the girl who received that the note that I just read... She had just recently moved to Indiana and she didn't even know because it had been 14 years. She didn't know the April Tinsley case. So at first she just thought it was really weird, which I, I don't know how you just think that's weird. I know it was. If you watch the interviews with her, I don't even want to repeat what she said because it, it, it's a little odd. But a friend had to convince her to call the sheriff and said, hey, April Tinsley was a little girl that was murdered. Like you should but probably like, notify the sheriff. Even not having that background information, it would be like, why are you <laughs> thinking that that letter is just like, Someone's silly. Yeah, kind of weird. Little weird. Someone playing a prank, she said, I think. Absolutely not. No. 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 The notes still did not lead to an arrest. As far as the police know, the killer had not acted again other than the notes in the bicycle baskets in the mailbox. The mom did say, though, I watched an interview, and the mom said that the note absolutely changed their life. And then in one of the interviews, her daughter is on the phone, like, during the interview, and it changed her life completely as she grew up and she knew. But, like, what made them cautious? Oh, like crazy. Like she never even went out after dark. Like during the interview I was watching, which was from just a couple years ago, she was saying that she'll never go out in the dark by herself, like to even take the trash out or anything. I mean, I get that. Right. I I feel like that. And I never got a creepy note from anybody. Right. 
The case affected everyone involved. The lead investigator left the department after three years of working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And during one of the interviews, he says that it changed his life. Not only was the crime so atrocious, but not to be able to find him and get him off the streets kind of wore on him. He he ended up leaving the department. Can you imagine like what those detectives go through? No, I couldn't. Then in May of 2018, 30 years after April was kidnapped and murdered, a detective arranged for DNA testing and analysis to be done on the evidence samples at a company called Parabon Nanolabs. If you're not familiar with Parabon Nanolabs, I took this directly from their website. It's organized in the state of Delaware. Parabon is a for-profit with headquarters in Reston, Virginia, and a nanotechnology laboratory in Huntington, West Virginia. Although they work heavily on technologies for the medical industry, the company is most widely known for revolutionizing the field of DNA forensics with their Snapshot Advanced DNA Analysis Platform. Back in 1988, forensics had administered a rape kit on April and retrieved semen as DNA evidence. However, they were unable to complete a DNA profile at the time because the sample was too small. DNA technology was still in its infancy at the time, and required a larger sample in order to get positive results. Instead, they preserved the DNA for future investigations. Those are the samples that were sent to Parabon. And I love that because so many times... Like, can you imagine how many cases police officers get? Yeah, And the evidence that they get, and you know what I mean? Like, keeping track of that for 30 years, they did an amazing job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure it's not easy. Cece Moore, if you haven't heard of her, is an American genealogist with a specialty in DNA who previously had contacted Parabon to discuss with them the possibility of using the process she used to find birth parents of adopted children in cold cases. Working with Parabon, Moore and her team of DNA sleuths uploaded the DNA results from Parabon to JudMatch. And if you don't know what JudMatch is, JudMatch is an open forum to upload your DNA from other DNA testing sites like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, or MyHeritage. It doesn't perform its own DNA testing. You get your testing done through another site and then upload it to JedMatch. For people searching for family members, it's a way to see results from all the different testing companies. So like if you were just to do Ancestry.com, you would only get comparable results from other people who have used Ancestry. By uploading to JedMatch, you can get more matches... Because it's everyone who's ever taken a test and put it in. Yes. As long as they get the results from 23andMe, MyHeritage, or Ancestry.com, they can take those results and upload them to GEDmatch and match with everybody who's ever done on any of those sites. Make sense? Yes. So this is what CC and her team did. By doing the same exact thing you do for adoptees, you find the closest match and build the tree forward as opposed to building it backwards like when you know who your parents are and your grandparents are. It's a long process and it can be super confusing. And if you lose your place and have to backtrack, it's happened to me before. And it's you ha- you almost have to, the way that she does it on a big whiteboard is kind of how I do it. Like I'll put a bunch of pages together and kind of, I mean, I don't have a big giant whiteboard because I have nowhere to put it, but you basically go back to where the DNA matches. Like it could be, anything as far distant as a sixth cousin. But by you have to find the common ancestor and you can work your way forward by using census records, birth and death certificates, even wills or obituaries. The team was able to narrow it down to two brothers based on DNA and availability, meaning the brothers lived near to where April went missing and was in the area when she went missing. And I know this sounds a bit confusing, but the DNA can only lead you to a match. You don't actually know who the person is that you're searching for. 
So this person you're starting with, whether it's a cousin or an aunt or uncle or a grandparent, those people have hundreds, sometimes thousands of matches. So what you have to do is narrow it down to a bunch of people. Then you kind of have to leave the DNA behind. And you know you are in the correct DNA pool, but you have to separate all these people based on availability to the crime scene and basically being alive when the crime happened and that they fit the profile. So you get Joe Smith is your match. Is matched to the suspect. Let's say it that way. Say your suspect is A. And then you find someone on Judd Match named Joe Blow that they match. So then you have to find a common ancestor between Joe Blow and A. Why can't you just contact Joe Blow? Well, please have in the past have contacted Joe Blow. But the thing is, very rarely when it's something, especially something like a cold case that's 20, 30, 50 years old, it's typically a sixth cousin or a fifth cousin or even a fourth cousin. They don't even know who that is. Very rarely does that person actually know the person they're matched to. So the goal is to see that you match with Joe Blow and then you're trying to get the closest relative to the suspect, hoping that they know that person? No. No. So what you do is, so A is your suspect and Joe Blow is the person he matches. There is a common ancestor between Joe Blow and A, whether it's, and I'm saying direct line ancestor, so a grandparent. So whether it's a second two times great-grandparent, three times great-grandparent, or four times great-grandparent. So you find that match of who Joe Blow matches and your suspect both has the same DNA from. So then you have to build a tree going forward. So instead of starting, typically what you do is you start with your family tree, you start with yourself. You put your information, your birth date, all that stuff, and then you put your parents' stuff, and then your grandparents' stuff. Well, this way, you're starting way back. You're starting sometimes on the third great-grandparents or fourth great-grandparents. I get all that stuff. And then you start going forward. But why do you need to do that? Because then you can find the person. So you start going forward. You can figure out who who A is. A is directly related to these people. Yeah. So when you go forward and you start at three great-grandparents, and then you go to second great-grandparents and first great-grandparents and parents, and then this is where it gets tricky. This is where you leave the DNA behind. Say these parents, you found the parents, but they had five kids, three girls and two boys. Well, the DNA doesn't, isn't a girl, so you can get the girls out. The DNA, DNA is a boy. So then you know it's two boys. But one of the boys, say one of the boys died in 1987. The murder occurred in 1988. There's your suspect. So it's just a process of elimination. It's a, pro- it's a long process of, em- of elimination. Mm-hmm. CC's team was able to narrow it down to two brothers based on the DNA and their availability, meaning that their brothers lived near to where April went missing and was in the area when she went missing. On July 6, 2018, the police started watching the Miller brothers, and I've seen them do this before on CC's show, The Genetic Detective, and if you haven't watched it, you really need to. She explains in detail what I kind of got all discombobulated on. She shows it actually on a whiteboard, so watch The Genetic Detective if you get a chance. In her show, they show how the police will follow a new suspect and grab anything that he touched, particularly something that has saliva on it. So like if he drops a cup in the trash can, as soon as he drives away, the police run over and put it in a bag. I didn't even know that was legal, really. <laughs> Clearly it is. Well, in what is it called? Um, I mean, I guess it's public property. You threw something away in a public trash away. can. And they're, and they're trying to solve a crime. They're not... I mean... I'm sure detectives do it all the time when they're following. I guess, but like you don't think that like your DNA can just be 
taken by somebody without permission. I don't know. But it's, it's done to solve a crime. But anyways, they, if they throw, if they throw a cigarette out a window, they'll literally pull over and run out in the middle of the street and grab the cigarette. In this case, detectives found used condoms in his trash can. Three days later, detectives got a phone call that they'd been waiting for for 30 years. The DNA in the used condoms found in John Miller's trash can matched the DNA in the condoms and the notes in 2004, and most importantly, the DNA found with April. Court documents said that when the police arrived at Miller's home Sunday, they asked him if he knew why they were there. He just answered April Tinsley. Before admitting the crime to investigators during the interrogation, he confessed to abducting and raping Tinsley, after which he choked her to death, and one of the reports said it took 10 minutes for her to die. He then stated that he also sodomized her, after which he dumped her body in the ditch where it was found. This was hard to read. Such a, she was eight years old. She was a little girl. And he's being wheeled in, like in the videos and stuff, he's being wheeled into the courtroom. Drag his ass. Drag him, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's, ugh. He was charged with confinement and child molestation and murder. In the hearing in July 2018, he pleaded not guilty, but then he changed his stance to guilty in December of that year. Even though his trial was scheduled for February 2019, it was later rescheduled. April's family wanted the death penalty for Miller, but he was sentenced to 80 years in prison in December of 2018. At present, John D. Miller is serving his prison sentence in Newcastle Correctional Facility, Indiana. The earliest he can be released is on July 2058, by which time he will be 99 years old. Just the thought that he could ever get out of prison. And he's probably in one of those protected for child criminal, for, you know what I mean? They have separate sections in jails for pedophiles and stuff like that because they'll be murdered. Yeah. Other prisoners don't take kindly to people who do things to children. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can murder anyone else, but if you murder a child, they some kind of code in prison. I don't know. The reason I want to tell the story specifically is because the fact that DNA is what solved this cold case and many others, including the Golden State Killer. C.C. Moore has stated on numerous occasions and on her TV show, The Genetic Detective, that she had some reservations about using GEDmatch because of privacy issues. The co-founder of GEDmatch, Curtis Rogers, had no idea that his site was even being used to solve crimes until it emerged that his search engine had helped to bring about the rest of the Golden State Killer. He had no idea that police were even using his site, you know. Ironically, he found out on National DNA Date that the site he created with his friend John Olson because of their love of genealogy. Rogers and Olson's founded GEDmatch in 2011, and the basic idea is really simple. The sale of autosomal DNA tests directly to the public enables genealogists to locate living relatives, and not only those who died a long time ago as earlier techniques made possible. The difference with GEDmatch to the DNA testing sites is that originally GEDmatch was completely free. Now there's a level that you can pay like $10 for or something. I don't even know because I've never paid for it, but anyone with a computer who has done their DNA can upload the results and match it sometimes to thousands of more people. This way you could have your results and those of others all in one place without having to do testing from all the different sites. Also, the testing sites like Ancestry, MyHeritage, and 23andMe have tight and strict policies about opening their databases to legal authorities for information. GEDmatch, on the other hand, is open to everyone, including law enforcement. Roger explains that he realized quickly that he had no control over that. Law enforcement can put the information on their site and they would never know, Roger explains. 
Accordingly, he and his partner revised the site's term of use and announced that they would allow the police to use it only for solving rape and murder cases. Visitors to the site are now aware that authorities have access to it, where previous members were invited to delete their information and new members are notified before they upload. So clearly the founders of GenMatch didn't even know that police were using it. People, me and you, had no idea that law enforcement was uploading DNA and finding matches. Yeah, but I mean, you have to know that you don't really have any right to privacy if you're uploading your information to your a own public DNA. website. Right. Yeah. But they didn't have any disclaimers on there. Now they do. Yeah. Now they have options. I'm curious though with our listeners, um, do you have a murder in your family? There are stories online of people being contacted directly by the police, notifying that they're a match to someone who committed a crime. So I'm kind of curious with our listeners, if you know that your DNA could be used to find a criminal in your tree, would you stop or would you would like would you put your DNA out there? If you knew that it could be tied to a criminal or solve a cold case, would you still upload it? I think so. You don't feel like there's a privacy issue with that? Privacy for who? So you someone that killed somebody? You don't get privacy, you killed somebody. Like I don't I mean it's your own family member though. It's someone you're related to. No. And there are stories online where the police contacted rather than having like a CC more like me do the backwards family tree, they'll call you up and they'll say hey, you match our suspect. Who in your family tree could it be? It's a sixth cousin. Like, They'll like give you all the information and then you help them navigate your tree and figure out who they are. I don't think I would have any hesitation. You would do it? Yeah. I clearly would do it. I'm curious what our listeners think about it, though, if people would upload their DNA knowing that it won't happen on Ancestry, it won't happen on, on my heritage, but on GEDmatch, you, you agree the minute you put it in there you're agreeing that law enforcement can use your DNA to track a criminal. I'm curious if people will do it or if they think that it's some kind of invasion of privacy, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. I'm sure there's people that would be weird about it, but I think that if you're going to put your private information on a public website, you shouldn't be like, oh, I only want law enforcement not to know. You're putting on a public website. Yeah, you wouldn't be surprised when someone gives you a call. Yeah, I mean, there's armchair detectives everywhere solving cases if someone wanted to find your information and you put it on public website someone's going to find your information so i think if you have you're weird about keeping that information private then you don't put it out there i mean dna is a lot more than like your name and phone number yeah i'm talking to a detective right now too that aside from dna detectives and investigators is particularly cold case investigators are taking classes in genealogy and dna now because it's proven. I think there's over 50 cases now that have been solved with DNA. Well, it makes sense. I know that a lot of old cases that they didn't have the ability to solve things by DNA have kept it and then they've come out later. Right. Like the detective I'm talking to right now, he um, took forensic genealogy for law enforcement and then he also took genealogy principles um, course through Boston University, which I find... I I think that's so cool that they're spending the time to go through genealogy courses on top of everything else they have to learn and do. I mean, I'd rather them call me and let me help them. But Yeah, like have a department of actual genealogists that can do it. And I'm sure there's a lot of bigger departments that probably have that. The smaller departments probably just train their own officers. But um, genealogy, I think genealogy, particularly DNA, is going to be 
the future of solving crimes for sure. Well, I can't even imagine how you don't solve crimes with DNA. Like that just blows my mind that that's even able to happen. Well, I think a lot of times there's not DNA left on the side. I mean, look at with the Black Dahlia. There was no DNA from the murderer. Yeah. So there's always going to be those cases. In May of 2019, nine investigators who had worked the case became recipients of the National Association of Police Organizations National Policing Award. This award was in recognition of their tireless collaborative efforts conducted over the span of 30 years to see April's murderer brought to justice. These investigators were from the Indiana State Police, the FBI, the Allen County Sheriff's Department, and the Fort Wayne Police Department. NAPO heralded them as being among the most eminent and dedicated officers in America. A memorial was completed called April's Garden near her home in Fort Wayne, and 31 years after her disappearance and murder, her mother Janet and other family members placed flowers and Easter eggs there and got to meet and thank Cece Moore, telling her now we know it's over and she can rest. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. 